Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. My guest today is author and journalist Celeste Headley. Earlier this year, as COVID broke on our shores, Celeste published a fascinating book called Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving, where she examines our fractured relationship with not only our jobs, but more importantly, our time and the metrics with which we evaluate our lives. Like many authors whose work came out in early 2020, her book ended up taking on a whole new meaning as the year unfolded since for many people, the boundary between home and work life became all the more blurry. And we felt both our powerlessness and often an overwhelming desire to do everything. Today, we talk about our addiction to self-improvement and why it's problematic for us to measure our self-worth through productivity. We talk about the history behind the idea that time is money and our obsession with efficiency. She shares the ways also that we can better engage with our work, like having more transparency between managers and employees. If we recognize this perversion, then it kind of makes you wonder what is the healthy state, right? <laughs> like if, if this is toxic and unhealthy and a perversion of our natural state, then what is the healthy ideal look like? And I, I really had to kind of go back to what is it that is healthy for all human beings, regardless of what part of the world you're in, regardless of your culture or background or whatever. And there really aren't a lot of things but that, that are true of all human beings, I should say. But <laughs> language is one and play is another. Play and music and belonging, community, the things that all human beings need in order to be healthy don't include work. Okay, 
let's get to my chat with Celeste Headley. Celeste, congrats on your book. I know it came right at this moment where we had to stop doing everything and start doing everything in a totally different way. And that's probably not the best time to publish a book, but it holds. Yeah, I certainly didn't predict any of this happening. You know, <laughs> And the world, the, at least the United States, started shutting down about 48 hours into my book tour. So no, not the best time to release a book. But I do think there's some good advice in there that can help people get through it. A thousand percent. And, you know, I just interviewed Catherine May, who wrote Wintering. I don't know if you've read that yet. But I do think that your book, you know, Jenny O'Dell's book, they're all sort of speaking to this, I think, the crisis and the relief, you know, one of the silver linings of the pandemic, which was like, we are not living in a, in a way that is at all sustainable for any of us in any measure, right? And yeah. so this call, you know, do nothing, this call to sort of take a look at the way that we're structuring our lives and filling our days is so critical. And I think that there is such an appetite to sort of, for all of us to continue to inventory our time and our values and what we're doing here and how we're spending our days. So I think it's an essential read. And I Thanks. loved it. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think, too, that the pandemic sort of sped up the timeline. I mean, we were already headed for trouble. And the pandemic just sort of really moved us forward really quickly toward toxicity. And to a certain extent, maybe that's a, a slight silver lining that it forced people to realize that their habits we're toxic and we're not mm -hmm. sustainable. I mean, that may be a, a part of the pandemic that ends up leading to better health, if that ironic fact could be stated. I mean, it's just, it's unfortunate. There's nothing, you know, on the broad strokes good about COVID-19. But I do think this particular portion of it, that it, it forced us to become aware of our unhealthy relationship with our work, might end up reaping some benefits. Yeah. And I feel like your book, you know, sort of directly about work, but loosely about life, right? Like this, yeah. you write at the very beginning, this idea of like how our happiness will just readjust, right? And you write, you know, we'll readjust the level of our happiness, despite what we've managed to make or procure or achieve. That makes us all vulnerable to those who promise more happiness and a better life through the use of their product system or software. We crave more joy and satisfaction. No matter what we achieve, no matter how many extra hours we work, we remain unfulfilled. As a 19th century economist, Henry George wrote, a human is the only animal whose desires increase as they are fed, the only animal that is never satisfied. That was an amazing paragraph, and it sort of speaks to that lack of the feedback loop, right? Which typically, like, you eat and you're sated, or you get something and you're happy, but we completely turn that on its head. It's perverse. Yeah. And it's interesting how that has become this just addiction to self-improvement. You know, it's odd because this book is classified as self-help, but in many ways, it's the anti-self-help book. This is basically the book that says, you're okay. Yeah, <laughs> You are all right. And stop improving for just a second and be who you are. Because yes, it has gotten to this place where we think we there's always a place to tweak. You know, I just saw a headline this morning 
that showed that the number of calls to plastic surgeons have gone through the roof because people don't like the way they look on Zoom. It made me so sad because, look, I have no problem with plastic surgery. The technology is out there. The knowledge is out there. And if that's what's going to help you feel more like yourself and more confident, absolutely. But not because you don't look good on Zoom. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, it's as you talk about sort of like how we need to sort of correct our misperceptions in part because you know, and you mentioned sort of this idea of doing and being. And for me, like, that's a massive inversion that I'm experiencing in my own life, like no longer having a full time job, etc. This idea that throughout my life, I've always sort of proved myself into existence through work, through doing, the doing allows me to be and trying to experience life as like my just being is in some ways my doing just like you're not we're enough like that's enough it's when there's no finish line there's no no one who's going to stand there and give you a medal there are no cookies and again to quote you this idea you write many of us are exhausting ourselves this way working very hard at things that accomplish very little of substance but feel necessary To a large extent, the solution to this problem is to correct our misperceptions in the way that those with body dysmorphia see something other than the truth in the mirror. The feeling of being productive is not the same as actually producing something. The truth is overwork reduced productivity. And I think that's so powerful. And I, and maybe it goes to the, the plastic surgery idea too, of like the illusion of what we're supposed to be doing is completely polluting what we're actually doing and the quality of what we're making. I think it's a really important point that you've made here because the delusion is a symptom of the illness. You know, if we were to sit down each day and just separate out not the tiny little tasks that we've done, how many emails we've answered or whatever, but how much did you actually get done? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I know a woman at my at my office that used to, she had that Todoist app, the little, it's like a daily Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And she would go in like she would go in at lunch and she'd create tasks for all the stuff she did. (laughs) She'd already done so that she would have the satisfaction of filling in the check mark. (laughs) Yes. And I I were laughing, but I I totally get that. But that satisfaction that you're feeling is not coming from actually reaching some kind of milestone right? Yeah. It's that we've created this idea that filling in the check mark is enough. Like Mm -hmm. that's our goal. But we have rarely stepped back and really said, wait a second, what is my goal? And, and what am I doing that's actually moving me forward instead of just running on this treadmill? Totally. I mean, but I relate so heavily. And, And at the beginning of COVID, I made a video on Instagram sort of about exactly what you were saying, which is I think we were all feeling so turned on our heads that I was reverting back to do lists hard. I always used to do lists, but I was writing down like walk, go on a 20 minute walk, take a shower. Like for me, it was some way to tether myself to the fact that I was so distracted, so anxious, I couldn't get anything done, but that I would have some measure of my time by writing down these things that I did do every day and that I took for granted, make dinner for my kids. But it's, as you say, like, it was sort of the buoy that I needed in that moment of feeling like, oh, I cannot accomplish, I can't produce anything, I can't accomplish anything. I certainly was not alone. 
particularly in that first month. But that's how I measure my value. And my the my worth is what I produce. So I needed that. I needed the structure of that really dumb to do list. Which I to totally feel okay. get. The tragedy of that for me, I 100% understand that. And <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, whatever you need to get you through and keep your head above water at this time of anxiety, I 100% endorse. However, <laughs> the fact that you felt lost because you weren't producing something. Like, I, I want to peel back that onion and get down to the core of that feeling of anxiety that you had or that low self-esteem that you had because you weren't doing something. That's what mm-hmm. this book is aimed at addressing, is getting back there to that core. Why do you feel unhappy? Because you didn't supposedly do something worthy that day, because you yeah. did do worthy stuff. And you know you did worthy stuff because you ended up putting it on your to-do list, right? <laughs> <laughs> I kept myself clean. Yeah, no, a thousand percent. And I love. I thought this was such a light bulb moment for me when in the book you sort of explained that that we experience this massive shift in the way that we think about our productivity when work became less about what you produced physically or what you created, and it became about efficiency and time. And that the idea, you talk about how punctuality, the original meaning is exactness. Yeah. But then it became about time and that efficiency meant the power to get something done which comes from accomplish, but now we see it as a synonym for being productive. So there was this massive shift of like thinking about all of our time, right, as a measure of our productivity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know what your education was like. I just know that for me, I don't think I really learned how seismic the shift was when the Industrial Revolution came along. I had no idea that people lived completely differently for, you know, most of the 300,000 years human Mm -hmm. beings have been on this planet. I mean, like when the Industrial Revolution came along, everything changed. And a big one was this relationship to time. You know, it's we've been talking for so many years about things like task-based work, right? Mm-hmm. We, we've discovered that as long as your work is task-based, it's going to give you more satisfaction. We've talked about things like a work-life balance. But these are all related to this idea. The, the reason we're having to deal with all these different things is because of this philosophy that, came, that arose with the Industrial Revolution that time is money, mm-hmm. that your time can be valued in dollars and cents. That's the original sin, right? That's what has caused all these different problems that we're now having to to deal with whack-a-mole. If we can get back to this idea that our time can be measured in our bank accounts then it, and attack that and get rid of that, then we don't have to deal with all this other stuff. Your time is not money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's that they're not equated. And yeah, just accepting that. And we've leaned into it with every generation, right? Like this began two or 300 years ago. It was already causing problems at that time. And every single generation has leaned into it till now. Here we are at a place where, as you said at the beginning, it is unsustainable. Unsustainable and and completely perverted, right? Because what also happened with the industrialization of work is this idea of the well, I guess a lot of women were sort of the first mill workers, but much of that work was men. And women who had always been working in the home 
producing clothes, soap, gardening, right? Like all of these, all of the things that kept people sufficient and and men obviously work too. But then you have this shift where suddenly like the work that matters somehow is the industrial work and that's attached to money. And as the, the whole shift of the economy and what it also did to women and this idea, I think that many of us carry that women didn't really work until the 70s. Oh, it's so and, ridiculous. I had yes. no idea this hidden history of how many women were entrepreneurs and business owners before the Industrial Revolution came along. And you're yep. absolutely right. It was devastating to women and their independence when we began to shift toward factory work. And so much of, of what they industrialized was the work women were doing, candle making and lace tatting and textile work. That's how women were earning their livings. That's how widows were making a living when their husband had passed away. You know, there were so many women who were put out of business and became dependent, you know, and then it became even worse because you know, before the Industrial Revolution, a lot of things occurred after that. For example, the enclosure movement in which spaces that had been public where, you know, a small landowner who had a couple sheep, you know, could graze their animals on the public square. Well, nothing, they they sold all that land or gave it to wealthy people. And then it wasn't public anymore. So again, you've taken away the means of support for people who were not wealthy. You've made people dependent on jobs and employers and factory owners. And we disempowered the Industrial Revolution. We think of that as a time when it really, everyone became civilized and that led to the comfortable lives that we have today. Today. That's true, but it also really disempowered the vast majority of people in these industrialized countries and most especially women. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And then you think too, you know, and not to sort of say, oh, let's go back to the days where we all need to be entirely self-sufficient and make our own clothes and garden, although there is something to be said for that. But you take away sort of culture's self-sufficiency and community sort of resilience and the way that we were living. And then, you, as you said, you make it dependent on employers and jobs. And people not only lose those skills, they lose their access to the creation of those, the creation of that self-sufficiency. And then you think about this extreme anxiety that we have culturally where, and of of course, like the great irony of, of COVID and the furloughs and the number of people who have lost their jobs, like even our healthcare is attached to our employment, right? Like our entire, we aren't self-sufficient, we're entirely dependent 
on what we can make from an employer to survive. It's such a weird shift. It's massive. And I don't but think we've ever processed it. it. You know, in many cases, it was intentional. And if you go back to those original documents, you know, letters and memos that were passed between executives at the time, you see that this was a strategy, that the more mm. dependent somebody was on their job, the less likely they were to demand higher wages and risk being let go, right? Mm -hmm. The more you disempower workers, obviously the more profits you can funnel from workers straight up to the top of the company, the harder you can work those workers, the more uh, abuse the workers will tolerate. And and believe me, you know, I'm not being anti-capitalist here. I'm just saying that the truth of the matter is, is that many industrialists, their strategy was to disempower workers so that they wouldn't have to deal with worker complaints. And that's not my opinion. That's just backed up by the documentation. One of the things I I found while researching labor practices throughout the centuries was, you know, when the Industrial Revolution began, there were even some employers that would go in and surreptitiously change the clocks, put them back so that workers wouldn't realize that it was six o'clock or whatever. They'd think it was still four. So they were literally stealing time. Mm. Um, And then... Yeah. And then you think about where we are sort of present day and and sort of the disappearance of that factory work and how the emergence of work in care industries, which many men are not interested in, but that's where the work is, right? We, yeah. we have massive needs in care, which we've always undervalued and underpaid. And mm-hmm. for many women, they do it theoretically for free or for no, for no dollars, for zero dollars at home. And then you get into it sort of in the traditional workday and the way where many of us are stuck, which is this idea that like you work from nine to five, except that's all been unboundaried by technology, right? So most of us are on call or looking at our email all the time, even in the middle of the night when we go to the bathroom. And that there's this idea that if you're not working, you're not sort of justifying your job or you could be working if you're self-employed and you know that time spent with your family is money out of your pocket like it's all become very perverted. Yeah, and perverted is a really good word because it's really is a perversion of the natural state for a human being. And th- that's one of the reasons you know one whole entire chapter is <laughs> goes back to evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology and the reason for that was because of what you're talking about this perversion if we recognize this perversion then it kind of makes you wonder what is the healthy state right <laughs> like yeah. if if this is toxic and unhealthy and a perversion of our natural state then what is the healthy ideal look like and I, I really had to kind of go back to what is it that is healthy for all human beings, regardless of what part of the world you're in, regardless of your culture or background or whatever. And there really aren't a lot of things but that, that are true of all human beings, I should say. But <laughs> language is one and play is another. Play mm-hmm. and music and belonging, community, the things that all human beings need in order to be healthy don't include work. Right. I mean, that's the big <laughs> takeaway. You are, are feeling productive. <laughs> right. You, you don't need that. You can be 100% healthy and happy without it. But it doesn't feel like that. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's yeah. so many people who say, oh, no, I work because I love it. And I think, do you? Right. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, I think some people do, particularly when they're in a field or they, you know, it's a true expression of who they are and their personal gifts. You know, I think that's an amazing, you probably feel that way about your work often. I certainly have felt that way about my work. Like, I love what I do. And it's hard. It's hard, again, to, I conflate the two, work and life, for that reason, in a way that's probably not healthy. But yes, for so many people, so many of my friends who are like, did I really want to do like bankruptcy law? Like, is that what I bring to the world? Or whatever it is, however they're spending their time, that is not necessarily what gives people the meaning, right? They're working to live. They're working to pay for those moments of freedom and joy. But we're also living in a culture where it's really hard to feel free or joyful, Right. And and the other thing is, is that as much as I love my work and I do, there's plenty of times when I get up to do my work and I really don't want to. There's <laughs> plenty of times when I'm, you know, I have a headache or I am right. sick or I stayed up to or I didn't sleep well. And if I were following the dictates of my body and my proclivities, I wouldn't get up and get to work. Right. I mean, so that's what I'm when I say that, like, people remain at work and we justify it. That's what I'm talking about. Right. Is this compulsion to continue working, which I don't blame or I don't shame anybody for that. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying that you've been made to feel this way. And, you know, when the pandemic hit and I started seeing all these posts on social media of how guilty people felt sitting on the couch and I, I thought to myself, this is going to be bad because people are at home all the time now and they don't know how to be at home without working. Yeah. We've gotten rid of all of the hobbies that our previous generations had, right? Nobody stamp collects anymore or polishes rocks. I mean, there are very few hobbies that people engage in that don't have a broader purpose. They don't have an Etsy <laughs> store. <laughs> Or they don't make pictures of them on Instagram, right? There's very few hobbies people engage in just for the sake of doing it. And so everyone was stuck at home and they didn't have anything to do. People don't Mm. own board games anymore. They don't play solitaire unless it's on their computer. And I thought to myself, you know, this is going to be bad. And I remember writing to my agent saying, hey, listen, (laughs) I should probably write something because people are about to start working longer hours, not shorter. Yeah. Because they're going to be stuck at home and they don't know how to not be at work. And that is exactly what has happened. People are working longer hours. They are taking more meetings than ever before. And that's because we don't have a home anymore. You know, somebody was saying that we are, we're not working from home. We're living at work. Totally. And this idea, too, of, you know, the anxiety of job loss and of feeling like you need to show the world that you're productive all the time. And that's sort of a measure of your value. Like, and this holds before this, this particular paragraph in your book, it certainly holds before and it holds after you write research from Roland Paulson at Lund University showed that employees spend about half of their workday cyber slacking or engaged in non-work activities not related to their primary job responsibilities. More than half of all online purchases are transacted between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. and almost two-thirds of the traffic at porn sites occurs during the workday. Few jobs legitimately involve the viewing of pornographic videos, so I think it's safe to assume we can include that in non-work activities, which is <laughs> hilarious. But, you know, before we 
had this mash, right? This like work life mash of like, you kind of have to find ways to get your Christmas shopping or your Hanukkah shopping done at the office. And then you kind of feel guilty about that. And so you're working at night and it's all a mess. So how do you think that we start to sort of particularly in this moment in time and who knows what work will look like? I sort of think I interviewed this man, Giampiero Petriari at INSEAD about who specializes in work. And he was like, I think it will go back really fast when it goes back. And I think he's, he's right. But how do we go back with better habits? Like, how do we start to engage with our work and our leisure in a way that is much more healthy and boundaried? You know, one of the things that just has to happen is that uh, managers need to get their strategies out of the 19th century. You know, they are really squelching productivity with this emphasis on hours uh, that someone is present on the job. And and maybe the pandemic will teach managers that, you know, you don't have to be constantly sitting at your computer in order to be considered a great employee. I doubt it because, you know, for some reason, they just can't get their minds out of the 19th century idea of somebody sitting on a factory line. Like here we are in the age of technology and software, and there are our habits, our managerial habits are based on the factory lines of the 1890s. It's Mm -hmm. ridiculous. But how do we do it? I mean, I think that what's going to happen to have to happen is that employees are going to have to become empowered on their own and start trying to shift the needle just a little bit. And one of the ways to do that is to be transparent with your your managers and say, hey, listen, here's what I got done today. I'm going to head home. Is that all right with you? you know, blah, 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 blah. And sort of negotiate this line between I got done even more than you expected of me today. And so it's ridiculous from you to expect me to sit at my desk. Right. And I do think it requires sort of an expansion of, and I don't know how many, and I feel like a lot of jobs don't have this, but sort of very clear understanding and articulation of your job description, right? And what done looks like. And what the expectations are so that people aren't because I I certainly sense this among, you know, friends and colleagues that you're sort of just like, I don't know when I'm done. And I don't know what's enough. And it is this again, it goes back to this unboundedness that we're all experiencing where people don't know how to draw that line. And they don't managers don't always put in place sort of the expectations of the job so that people are like, Oh, I wrote my three stories this week, or you know, this is what I accomplished so that they can go home and feel like it's enough. And I I think that, you know, I I jokingly, sometimes when people ask me this, how do I bring my manager into the modern world? I I jokingly answer by saying, give them a copy of this book, because to a certain extent, I feel like maybe they need to see the statistics. Maybe they need to realize that that when someone takes all their vacation days, they actually end up being more productive and more effective, less error prone and more creative than someone who doesn't. Yes. So imposing any kind of penalty, whether it's implied or real on someone who takes all their vacation time, that's counterproductive quite literally. And, And sometimes people just need to see that in black and white. 
to, to realize that you're following this line of thinking that it feels right because it's the way it's always been done. But that doesn't mean it's good. That doesn't mean yeah. it's effective. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And it's also, you know, you talk about sort of the industrialization of work, and we think about that as if that's where we started, we're not machines, right? Yeah. And you talked about the moments when you're like, I t I'm tired or I slept badly. I certainly have those moments, and I don't know if it's because we're both writers and maybe we're sort of built the same way, but... I can be wildly productive, like crazy productive, but my process is often, and I learned this in college and was have been able to sort of manage it throughout my career, recognizing the days, the hours when it ain't happening. Like I'm not, I'm just not in a flow state. I'm not going to get anything done. Then I'm going to go online and like, you know, get my kids some clothes or whatever it might be. And then other times, you know, I'm writing a book right now and my process, I guess it's called hermetical. I can't remember exactly what it is, but I'm reading a ton and taking in a ton, not writing at all. And then I'll sit down and put out 6,000 words in six hours. Yeah, and I do the same thing. Yeah, Same thing. It's like you're pregnant and you get to the point where you're like, oh, it's coming. I'm like, uh, you know, Rob, get the kids out of the house. Like I'm going into labor. No, but and then I don't write anything for weeks. But I could also just be berating myself, like write 200 words a day, goddammit. And I just, it's not my process. It's not. And I, I'm assuming most people are similar. Like you get a tremendous amount done in a few hours and then maybe nothing for the next 10. Yeah. And, you know, that's the way with that we know from our best knowledge. That's how the human brain works. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, and this is one of the things that I, I mentioned in the book is when you go back through records, you see how very few hours a day some of the most accomplished and productive people in history have worked. Charles Darwin, Charles Dickens. I mean, just a, 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 the list of people who worked maybe four or five hours a day is huge. It's massive. And by if you force yourself, this whole knuckling down, the phrase I hate is rise and grind. <laughs> that has a lot of meanings. <laughs> I yeah, 
But the meeting I'm talking about is the one where it's like, okay, get up, get to the gym, get yourself going, get your coffee on. You know, this idea that the morning when you're setting yourself up for the rest of the day, that you're supposed to just pop up and immediately start grinding your brain into work. No, absolutely not. You need to find, just like you have found the best way for you to be productive, you need to find the morning routine that actually works for you and sets you up for a healthy, relaxed, uh, positive frame of mind. Not the kind that like forces yourself to get as many of those check marks X'd in on your to-do list. That's that's not going to help you. Yeah. And I think for managers... An important part of it is sort of care, right? And understanding how the people on your team might work or might produce and less of a this breaking away from this task mastery idea, which I also think that we have and is probably a projection, right, from our own lack of enjoyment often in our work and in our productivity and the fact that we're just, as you said, grinding it out. And so we project that onto other people who we're supposed to manage with this idea that, oh, if I'm not on them, they're not going to do it or not giving them autonomy, not assuming their competence and not sort of allowing or giving them the space to do it how they want to do it when they want to do it. And as long as it's done and done well, like everyone should be happy. But we're still stuck in this sort of, I'm going to manage you and you're going to be managed. And I think that's also very disempowering and unhealthy. It's very, yeah. it's, it's very and we patriarchal. need to get rid of that word it, because you're not supposed to be a manager. You're supposed to be a coach. You know, and yeah. one of the things that really interferes with a leader's ability to motivate their team is something that's called survivorship bias, which it's a logical error. And it, it's basically that you concentrate on the successes so uh, say let's say a CEO has sort of risen through the ranks, even though so few of them do. Let's say they did. <laughs> when an employee comes to them and says, hey, we're having trouble with whatever it may be. We're having IT problems. We're having issues. And this is slowing us down. That CEO is going to look back at their own history and all they'll see are the successes. <laughs> mm. And they'll think, wow, this person is a whiner. I got through this without hardly any trouble whatsoever. Mm. And and they, we have, all of us have this bias where we don't tend to see how difficult things were for us. You know, it's interesting. One of the most famous instances, examples of survivorship bias was in World War II when they were trying to figure out how to make planes more safe from enemy fire. And so they began to study the planes to see where the bullets hit. And they were like, okay, we'll put some armor on those places where there's bullet holes. And and then one of the researchers came up and said, look, you're studying the wrong thing. You're studying the planes that made it back. Mm. (laughs) The the planes you have to study are the ones that were shot down. And and the same thing with our survivorship bias. You cannot judge things based on only successes. We really have to embrace failure as an incredible learning opportunity. And this is really important for leaders to understand is that failure, slowdowns, those are also very productive. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They have created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. 
You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at CarbonX.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. It's interesting, this idea, this bias, because as a woman, and maybe there is a gender component to this, I think of it sort of almost as the opposite. Less about, oh, I don't remember that being so hard, what's wrong with you, and more, oh, well, this sucked for me. You know, I didn't get any paid family leave, or I didn't get support, so why should I make things any easier for you? Yeah, this is a different kind of bias. We and it is a is a, it's a type of bias that we have where we amplify how things were for us and mm. we really de-emphasize struggles other people are having. And the reason for this is because we don't know the ins and outs of how difficult it is for somebody else. Right. This actually actually causes a lot of struggle within organizations where one department will hate another one. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Marketing hates PR and <laughs> PR hates the editors. And that's partly because of this bias where we really see every single detail of what is making things difficult for us. And when surveyed, people always highly rate how difficult their own jobs are and always underrate how difficult other people's jobs are. Yeah. And so, you know, we're just very inaccurate. Anytime we're trying to judge somebody else's struggles or travails or anything like that, we're very inaccurate at doing that. The only way to do that accurately is to shut up and let them tell you. <laughs> and to have some sort of reciprocal faith, right? Or this idea that of, of good yeah, intent. Yeah. yeah. Empathy, care, telepathy, whatever you want to call it. But this desire for the same end product and like however you get there and whatever way you choose works for me as long as it doesn't negatively impact other people. Right. I mean, you really do have to allow people to do their own jobs. You know, there's so many biases involved in what you're talking about here. There's another one that is where leaders have this, they often get caught in what's called the expertise trap. So one of the reasons they don't allow their team members to tell them what's going on is because when you become an expert in one subject, you start to believe that you're an expert in everything. When you're smart about one thing, you start to believe you're smart about everything. And you forget that if you're not working in the shipping department anymore, you, you probably don't remember <laughs> what that job entails. And so when you've moved on, you need to allow the people in the shipping department to tell you what's needed, but they don't. They don't listen to their own team members. It's the expertise trap. As your expertise and your intellect goes up, your learning curve flattens out. Right. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I know we're almost out of time. There's so many important pages about parenting and women and and all of that. I don't know if we can get to it, but the other thing that I definitely want to get to is that you talk about 
sort of the research around perfectionism and how that's been increasing in college students since the 80s. And I think, you know, as a perfectionist who's trying always to be a recovering perfectionist and very grateful that I did not grow up with social media or an iPhone or any of it, but how... How is this manifesting itself? I know it's manifesting itself sort of across the spectrum of life and work, but how is this, how do you think we got here and how do you think it's showing up? So, uh, yes, perfectionism is definitely increasing over time and perfectionism is really damaging. You know, one of the most horrifying statistics is that suicide has, you know, began to rise a few years back, and it's mostly among young people. In fact, one of the biggest increases was among children. <laughs> mm. And that it's some of this, it can be traced straight back to perfectionism. This idea that no matter how good you are, someone else is better at it, that everything should be measured and, and weighed and it, it is in competition with another person, you know, and it, it Part of this you can see in our society's emphasis on testing constantly in schools, as though testing scores tell us whether a school is successful or not. And if you're mm-hmm. a parent, you know that's not true. But we have created these lists of things that kids need to do where our children are walking resumes. And that means that ch- not only are, do our children feel horrible every time they're not actually accomplishing anything, but they also feel paralyzed because they are aware at all times that no matter what they do, it it won't be good enough. Right. You write, this perfectionism is a byproduct of a society that is outwardly focused and constantly making comparisons. You might feel good about the dinner you make until you look on Instagram, or you may love a certain TV show until you see it being dragged by people on Twitter who claim that only an idiot would enjoy that show. So true, you know, because I think even, you know, grown people, grown women, like I can look at Instagram and be sort of, I want to believe that I'm impervious to it. And I recognize that it's so much of it is a total projection. And now there's like the projection of the project, there's the projection of authenticity on top of the projection. And, but it's true, right? There's this idea that, however, it's beyond sort of what we intellectualize or rationalize. It's more insidious than that of, you know, we can say, oh, I know these are just edited shots of like someone's day, but that it is never before we had this sort of comparison tool. It's so strange, right? And it's it used to so be, strange. it was just critics. It's so damaging. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, one of the ways, but believe me, I, when I wrote this book, I had no idea I'd be reading so much about economics. <laughs> but one <laughs> of the ways that, that this has manifested is in the fact that we, no one's happy with their salary because they're not comparing themselves to their neighbors anymore, right? Nobody even Mm -hmm. knows their neighbors. You know, during my mother's age, she would have these barbecues and stuff and all the neighbors would come over, even the ones she, you know, didn't like or didn't agree with. Imagine that. And somebody would talk about their new Buick they got or somebody got a new gas grill or whatever it was. We don't, not only do we not have those gatherings anymore, but the people we're comparing ourselves are not the guy who lives down the street. It's Kim Kardashian. Right. And that's always going to make you unhappy. Right. Oh my God. That's, that reminds me of just one of the most staggering statistics in your book, which is, which I completely relate to, which is this idea that 
me see if I can find it, but that we now think at this point, Americans don't think someone is wealthy unless their income is about $2.5 million a year. That's 30 times the actual amount an individual needs in order to be classified as upper income in the United States and 30 times the average net worth of American households. But that's so true. That's 30 times. (laughs) And I have that exact same response where I completely identify with that. And I also can recognize that it's insane, but that's how it feels, right? It feels like we're all that nothing is achievable. Yeah, absolutely. If you're not carrying a Fendi bag, how wealthy could you actually be? You know, it was interesting. My stepdaughter, when she was turning 16, you know, they have that Sweet 16 show. I don't know what it's called, but they have some show where people get elaborate Sweet 16 parties. And she oh, was Oh, making- yes. I know what you're talking about. I think it was like an MTV. Yes. My Sweet yeah. 16. Yes. Some, yeah. <laughs> and she wanted some big party. And I was like, well, you're not getting that. But I tell you what, I'll give you a budget of $250. Very <laughs> generous. You, I, right? I mean, that's a lot for a party. <laughs> and and I'm like, and you see what you can do with that. And she comes back to me like a week later. He's like, I can't rent any hall for $250. And I'm like, yep. Yeah. You know, and it didn't, she hadn't even, it wasn't connected with reality. Yeah. You know, she has no idea how much it costs to rent those hotel rooms that they use or how much those dresses cost. And when she was forced to sort of look at how much these things cost, she may not even connect that to how many hours a day it would take me to earn that amount. There's just this complete, utter disconnect. It's true. And that, and then also feel aggrieved or, you know, less than or ashamed that yes. she doesn't have the bends with the big red bow on it waiting for her in the foyer of the Four Seasons. But that's what everyone else is doing, right? It's so funny. It's true. And it, it I don't even think it's not rational, but it's certainly it certainly has spun us all up, right? I'm sure the price of the average wedding has just gone through the roof now that people can see everyone else's weddings on Instagram and there are so many wedding shows, et cetera. And yet here again, <laughs> you find the research shows that the, the more expensive your uh, wedding reception is, the more likely it is that you'll get divorced within the first 10 years, like the less likely it is that your marriage will last. So oh, again, thank God, this, some relief. This, I know. Thanks. Mine cost <laughs> nothing. But, but, you know, it's again, it's this idea of what is your goal? Is your goal a happy marriage or is it to have this fabulous party? Because have the party. It just doesn't have to be a wedding party, right? Right. I mean, if you want a party, throw a party. But don't try to throw the same one that, you know, pink threw (laughs) or, you know, whatever. So again, it's like this weird disconnection between what our goals are. Because very few people... If you ask them, what is your goal in life? Very few people are going to say, you know, a house similar to Kim Kardashian's and a Fendi bag. Right. And yet we live our lives as though that is our goal. So, you know, one of the things that's most important is for people really to sit down and say, what is my big overarching goal for my life? What do I want out of life? And then how do I get there? Yes. Totally. I love that. Because I think that, and I hear this all the time, and I've certainly participated in this where I'm like, I don't have enough or I don't have what I need. And then someone's like, well, what do you need? 
And like, what's enough? And I'm like, I have no fucking idea because I've never thought about it, right. you know? But this, the, that, and I did this at the beginning of COVID too, which was very comforting and helpful to me. I actually made a budget and then I made my ideal budget and then I made my five-year budget. And it was really helpful just to articulate it. And then I felt like it was something I could go out and meet or not, but that I actually knew it and I had articulated it and made it so, and that there was something very liberating in that rather than just thrashing around in the sea of not enough. I am so glad that you did that. I highly suggest everybody do that, is to create what is your ideal budget? What is it that you need? And make it realistic. When I went through the same exercise, I actually said, okay, where am I going to be living in five years? What's the average home price there? Mm-hmm. And then what's going to be my mortgage payment every month? Like I got very specific at how much do I need each month? And it turned out I was making more than that. Wow. <laughs> I was already making more than my ideal budget. And yet I still had this feeling of I need enough. I need more. I need more. And when I made that realization, it helped me to say no to things. So yeah. before that, one of the reasons I was so busy all the time is that people would come in with these offers. This is, you know, when, after I became self-employed, they come in with offers and I think, well, God, that's a lot of money. I can't turn that down. But when I realized that I didn't need that money, mm-hmm. <laughs> that I was going to be okay without it, it made it much more likely that I was able to say, you know what? No. And, you know, and the other thing is that I think as part of that sort of budget is I started asking myself what kind of vacations I wanted. Because for so many years, I've had this odd, you know, sort of vague notion of traveling to Paris and, you know, whatever. But when it came down to it and I asked myself, where do I really want to go? I want to go see my friends. Yeah. <laughs> you know, totally. and it's really not that expensive to go to Flagstaff. <laughs> my best friend is. It's really not that expensive to spend a weekend in LA to see my friends and family there. Well, thank you for your book. Thank you for your time today. I really hope that people read your book and there's so much wisdom in it. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Celeste Headley. For more from Celeste, please check out her book, Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, underliving. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.